What makes for a good leader? Leadership books are pouring off the presses and onto bookshelves, maybe onto your bookshelves, each advocating what they define as the critical marks, the defining marks of leadership. Oftentimes you can talk to folks who are in middle management, and if they don't want to stay in middle management, what are they looking at? They're looking at leadership. They want to succeed in their careers and be leaders of people. Leaders of companies, taking them from good to great. But what makes for good leadership in the church? What would you say are the qualifications for church leaders, the characteristics necessary for one to be a leader of God's people? This is exactly what we examined this morning, the qualifications of church pastors. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. The reason why Timothy, the recipient of this letter, was to care about church leadership and qualifications was because the church was kind of under siege. Under siege by things inside the church. There were leaders who had arisen and they were teaching false doctrine. Teaching things that led to vain discussions and quarrelsome uh, behaviors. And so Paul writes to Timothy, I write to you so that other so that the church would know how they ought to behave in the household of God, including the pastors of the church. So here he's focusing on right order in the church. Look there at first Timothy chapter three, and we'll go from verse one to seven. Paul writes here. He's writing in the mid 60s A.D. He writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he, des- he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, quarrelsome, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The main point today, the character of the pastor matches the task of the pastor. The character of the pastor matches the task of the pastor. Weighty task, weighty character. Weighty task, weighty character. Simple outline today. We look at number one, what is an elder? And then number two, what are the qualifications of an elder? What is an elder? And then what are the qualifications of the elder? So first we ask and answer the question, what is an elder or pastor? So you all might be wondering why I'm using the term pastor or elder when in verse one it says overseer. Pastor, overseer, elder. Those are three terms used to describe the one office more commonly known today as pastor. They're all the same thing. Um, So the word bishop comes from one of these words. And we ought not to think that the modern day use of the word bishop, you know, one who oversees many churches, Um, that that's what Paul is talking about. That's actually not what he's talking about. Uh, Because these three terms are used for the one office of an elder or a pastor. So you could call me if you wanted to, or Jeremy. You could call him Bishop Jeremy. I don't know if I recommend that just because of all the connotations that come with it. But you could call him a bishop. You could call him a pastor. You could call him an overseer. You can call him an elder. Uh, Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 20. Here, we're just trying to get the, the lay of the land here, trying to figure out what exactly it means to be um, an elder. And we're looking at how there are three terms here used for the one office. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. <clears throat> here, Paul is in Ephesus. Ephesus was the city that Paul is actually writing, uh, that, that Timothy is in. So as he writes to Timothy, to the church at Ephesus, he's writing to these same people right here. That we see in Acts chapter 20. And he calls together the Ephesian elders. 
he calls together the Ephesian elders um, there in verse 17. And then look all the way down in verse 28. He encourages them. He's talking to them about, talking to them about how he's going to miss them. And then 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there you have two words. You have elders, you have overseers. But then he goes on, he says, uh, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care, to care for the flock, to care for the people. And that word care can also be translated to shepherd. So there you got all the different terms there, elders, overseers, and then you have a verbal form of the word care. Um, so there, I'm just making the point there that the three terms are used for the one office of pastor. A good summary of what the elder pastor overseer is and does, I'll give you one now. An elder is simply a man of exemplary Christ-like character who's able to lead God's people by teaching them God's word in a way that's helpful. So I'll say that again. An elder is simply a man of exemplary Christ-like character who's able to lead God's people by teaching them God's word in a way that's helpful. Um, now I can tell some of you guys are ready to hunker down in order to endure 40 minutes, maybe even an hour, of seemingly irrelevant material. You know, you're not a pastor. Maybe you don't even strive to be a pastor. You know, is this subject applicable for us today? The answer is yes. It is very applicable for you today. So generally speaking here, us talking about the qualifications of an elder, pastor, overseer, it helps you all know who to give your trust to. So just because somebody handles God's word or even calls himself a pastor does not mean that you should give your trust to them. Just like finding a doctor... You don't just entrust your life to a doctor, your physical life, but you do research. You figure out their qualifications. You interact with them. You test them to see if what they're talking about is legitimate. Maybe even go and get second and third opinions about what other doctors say. So it is with your souls that are eternal. This patch helps you know what to expect from a pastor here or any pastor anywhere. What should he do? What are the qualifications he should meet? in order for you to entrust your soul to him. One pastor, he points out that the fact that, <clears throat> he points to the fact that uh, this passage here has multiple applications. He's, he mentions, you know, to married women, this here has application for you. This provides here prayer points that, as he said, you can pray into your spouse. If you're looking for godliness, what does it look like? Take this list that we're about to look like and be praying for these things for your spouse younger women right if you prize godliness and if maybe one day you want to get married here you have a list with which a, a guideline with which you can use to measure up your suitors and then decide whether or not you want to pursue this person <clears throat> when they pursue you is this a godly man this text will actually help you do that men whether older or whether younger this passage here gives us something to strive towards as you follow jesus Verse one, go ahead and look there. It says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. A noble task this is a good and honorable task. And it not only states that it is honorable, like the office itself, the task itself. He also says the desiring of it is good, too. So here, this is like godly ambition. Many of us might have strong ambitions to climb corporate ladders or to get to places in the world that the world might say is good, that you might think is helpful, your family might think is helpful. Here, God says that to aspire to the office of overseer is a noble and good task and ought to be aspired to. So men, do you aspire to this task and these qualifications that we already read? Do you aspire to be a man of exemplary Christ-like character who leads God's people by teaching them God's word in a way that's helpful, caring for God's people. I pray that you would. I pray that if you have that desire, that God would continue to nurture that desire. And if you don't, that God would place that in your hearts even today to care for God's people, just as God himself has cared for us. Turning now to the task of the elder, we're still looking at what is an elder, looking at the task. You notice that caring is part of the elder, as it says in Acts 20, verse 28. Go ahead and turn there. He says, 
he says, uh, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, pastors, etc., to care for the church of God. He has given people the task of shepherding in order that they might care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. This Acts passage is actually very instructive for us because it encourages the elders, the pastors, to care for the church. And then he reminds them of the great cost paid to obtain the church. Why do you think he, he, he reminds them of this task or of the cost? It's almost as if he says, now you remember, you elders, you guys who aspire to be pastors, you remember Jesus shed his very blood to obtain the church. Now, as you wait for Christ's return, you care for them carefully. With the same care that Christ gave as he shed his very blood. With the same watchfulness that Christ watched over his own soul and watched for the sheep that he was going to die for. So you carefully care for them. Watchfully care for them. Lovingly care for them. And you do that because God cares. We are to love. Pastors are to love. Aspiring pastors are to love because God loves. And if Jesus Christ himself is going after the strays, so Christians, too, ought to give themselves to obtain the sheep. We care. We are to care because God cares. And that Ezekiel 34 passage that Aaron read earlier, it's a marvelous passage. And if we were to read the whole entire chapter, you see that in that chapter, there were shepherds of Israel, false shepherds of Israel who were feeding themselves. And God blasts them. You feed yourselves, you fatten yourselves, you kill, you devour your very own sheep in order that you might be comfortable. And so God then steps in and he says, and I will be your shepherd. That's why that theme is sort of being woven in throughout the service of leadership. Of submission, of care, of how God himself shepherds the people and how shepherds today or any pastoral candidate. They are supposed to resemble a little bit insofar as God gives grace, the very love and care, the shepherding of God. And if you think about it, you know, as we walk, as we go from this land to the next, pastors are to care as God cares. You know, we know that Christ is going to be, he's going to return and we're going to be reunited there. And he hands over his sheep to shepherds, to really under shepherds, as first Peter calls us. A pastoral candidate is to be in an under-shepherd if he then moves into leadership there. And we are called pastoral candidates, you know, hopefully they would be folks who are caretakers. Caretakers of God's house, really. That's what, that's what uh, Paul calls them in Titus. He says that pastors are stewards of the things of God over the house of God. So imagine c- coming to, you know, a bread and breakfast uh, owned by God. He wants people to come in and to be well-fed. To receive great and marvelous hospitality. To be fed the choicest morsels of food. To be loved by his caretaker. To experience a little bit of what the heavenly city might one day look like. And he calls the pastor, you love in such a way that resembles my love. You love my people in such a way that resembles my love. So Paul, Paul says here and elsewhere in scripture that we are caretakers of God's house. We are stewards providing oversight of something that's not ours, but something ultimately that's God's. And you so you, so you feel that weight. The task is weighty, so therefore the character is needed to lead these folks. Continue to think about the task here. The task of shepherding others. Oversight is clearly involved here. Overseeing others. So in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, you can turn back over there. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, if one desires the office of overseer, if that's even, so oversight is necessary. We are to, as 1 Timothy 3, 5 says, care for God's church. And the primary way that pastors care for God's church is through the ministry of the word. Through the pulpit ministry, but then also in our interpersonal ministry away from the pulpit. But here, when we gather as a church, this here is the way that shepherding happens. This here is the way that discipling happens. It's through feeding God's people God's word. First Timothy 3, 3, we see that the pastor is to be an able teacher. We're going to talk more about that. First Timothy 1, sorry, in Titus 1, 9, it says that the elders are to give instruction in sound doctrine 
and rebuke those who contradict it. Second Timothy four verses one and two says, Paul says, I charge you writing to Timothy as well. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. So just as pasture plants are to sheep, so God's word is to the church. So pastors ought to give themselves to caring, shepherding the flock through feeding the flock with the very shepherd's word, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. That's what Peter calls him, the chief shepherd of which someone like myself or other pastors out there, or if you aspire to be a pastor or an elder, an elder, you then would be an under shepherd of Christ. This is the task of the pastor. And even though most of us have no idea of what it looks like to pastor or to be a shepherd, we can all picture what shepherding the flock involves. It involves caring for your flock. It involves feeding the flock. You know, if you guys have pets, you know what this is like. Caring for your pets. Uh, not that the church or pets is a pet. Uh, feeding your flock. Fattening the flock. You want them to be big. Fat with the word. You want to also protect the flock from wolves. So that requires a lot of initiative. It takes boldness. You fight for their survival until even your death. And then when we read of the Old Testament, there we get more of what this shepherd category looks like. I mean, Moses himself was a shepherd as he led God's people out of Israel during this difficult time. You're leading them out of something and towards God's, in the Old Testament there, the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey. And so pastors are to do the same today. Leading people out of slavery under sin to the promised land that is heaven. All the while feeding them, defending them, protecting them, and even maybe dying for them, just as Jesus does. And we have God ultimately as our chief shepherd. So you know that shepherds, you know, whether they be shepherds today or, or shepherds in the Old Testament, shepherds in the New Testament, pastors, they all picture the great shepherd, the chief shepherd that is Jesus. We are to be a reflection of Christ who dies for his sheep and buys them back. He obtains them with his great blood. So if leading people and teaching them God's word in a way that profits them spiritually is the task of an elder, what are the qualifications? High task. So also you see high qualifications. What are the qualifications of an elder? This is point number two. The qualifications, again, are fitting to the task. Unfortunately, you know that there are so many misconceptions about the task. And therefore, the qualifications, the discussion around the qualifications, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions as well. So if you guys think, if we were to think, let's say we were looking for a pastor, and we think that the primary task of a pastor is to gather sheep together, just, just gathering them, and then maybe entertaining them, you know, what are you going to look for? You're going to look for an entertainer. You're going to look for a person who can, who can collect the masses regardless of how they go about doing that. If we all were to think that the primary task of a shepherd is to manage or to organize or to structure, not that those things are bad. If, we, if, that, if that was a pro, the, the primary task, then we're going to go hire a CEO. We're going to go find out if this man can organize but still, we haven't really gotten to the nub of the qualifications of the elder or even the task. Uh, but if the task of the pastor is to shepherd underneath the authority of God, um, exercising spiritual oversight on behalf of Jesus, by ministering the words of Jesus, then you're going to find a man who exemplifies Christ, a man who is able to teach his word. And the Bible says clearly there's supposed to be multiple elders in a church. So we're going to look for men who can do this. Multiple people who can exemplify Christ and teach his word. So as we look at these verses, you know, just remember, noble task demands noble character. And this is clear from verses 1 and 2 in the transition there. Look again in that passage. It says, if anyone desires or aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's noble. Therefore, because of the task, the weight of it, therefore, we need weighty qualifications. Uh, he says first, when we're getting at the qualifications, first underneath is a large category. We're looking for a holy man. 
a holy man. This is a man who is above reproach. This is a man of integrity, a man who is free from conspicuous sin. Thabiti Anyabwile summarizes it this way. He says, being above reproach means that an elder is to be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality. People would be shocked to hear this kind of man charged with immoral acts. Pretty simple. No conspicuous or free from conspicuous sin. Based on the way that this man lives and what he speaks about, uh, how he handles himself, how he leads his family, how he pursues Jesus, how he works, how he deals with outsiders, how he manages and oversees his reputation. People conclude, for better or worse, that this man is a holy man. And that's the kind of reputation you want. When you pull up to your friends who are non-Christians, which I hope you have many friends, they might feel a little uncomfortable around you holy person you're a holy man you know you shouldn't be talking about those types of things because a holy man is here and that kind of works hopefully you know the elder is supposed to lead in these things but it certainly means that the congregation is as well to be to be living out these qualifications so hopefully in your own life you know if you pull up to your friends and they're cursing they would know up you know we got the christian here so i shouldn't say that and this happens regularly to me i mean people would say oh you're 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 a pastor i shouldn't cuss uh, unfortunately, they're not thinking in those categories as they live out their lives before God. Uh, and not only with something seemingly insignificant, possibly as like a curse word, you know, when you stub your toe. You know, they're not thinking in these categories as they, manage, as they oversee all, their whole entire lives. So this phrase, above reproach, functions as a banner headline of everything else that follows. What is the elder to be? He's supposed to be a holy man. He is supposed to be above reproach and then he sort of double clicks on that and it's really instructive isn't it that in laying out the qualifications of a pastor paul under the inspiration of the holy spirit highlights characteristics he goes after the character of a man it's not how many people did you baptize or how many people did your church grow by when you served there or what kinds of programs did you initiate in order to reach the community that's not really what he looks at here he goes after character, first and foremost. Remember, this guy here, if one is aspiring to be an elder, he is supposed to be an example. He's supposed to exemplify Jesus to the people. And as I even talk about that, that is weighty. He's drawing attention not to himself, but attention to the righteous God, Christ who loves perfectly. Pastor Shepherd, as again, under shepherds of Christ himself. So being above reproach, being holy is kind of like the grand jewel hung around the neck of the elder or any Christian in general that decorates the life of a pastor and is intended to draw attention to the Savior. It's like the grand jewel that God wants to hang around every neck of his child. Um, you know, in light of all of these different misconceptions, uh, you know, people think that the pastor should be a CEO, the pastor should be a great uh, entrepreneur, that's really big these days. You know, the pastors should think entrepreneurially and all these types of things. Um, start various organizations. And Spurgeon had really something very interesting to say to this. Spurgeon started all sorts of ministries. He's trained hundreds and hundreds of men for the ministry, pastored a church of very many people in England. And he said this. He said, it will be vain of me to stock my library and the guy was a genius. He just sucked up books and knowledge. He said, it would be vain of me to stock my library or organize societies if I neglect the culture of myself. For books and agencies and systems are only remotely the instruments of my holy calling. But then he says, my own soul, my own body are my clearest machinery for this sacred service. My spiritual faculties and the inner life are my battle axe and weapons of war. That's why God's going after character here. Another pastor, he put it that God doesn't necessarily bless talent so much as he blesses a holy character and a holy man, a man who lives his life similar to Jesus, walking in his same footsteps. So as we look now at, at what it means to be above reproach here, the first attribute listed is husband of one wife, also translated a one-woman man. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what exactly this means. 
I believe what Paul is talking about here is that a pastor must be sexually pure. It also means that he must not be a polygamist. Um, And it also has, based on other theological concepts in the New Testament, that this man must not be the one filing for divorce, or or I should say, the one at fault for divorce. Uh, So this man ought not be the one... um, you know, who's very loose morally, who strays away from his wife, but one who is sexually pure. And purity is mentioned in the context of marriage, right? Just as adultery is mentioned in the context of marriage in the Ten Commandments. Uh, don't commit adultery. It doesn't mean that all these other sexual sins are allowed. He's just saying the man should be not only commit adultery, but be sexually pure. So, but in mentioning this, you know, if you guys are aspiring to be an elder, you might be wondering... Is he excluding me as a single guy if you are single? I don't think so. If he were saying that, then that would mean that he would exclude himself and Jesus from being their pastor if they so wanted. And plus, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that singleness is a God-given gift that men and women can use for as they labor, especially for the Lord, for the Lord's gospel. So certainly those people that were gifted by God would not be excluded because of that gift from serving in a different position there. So application, okay, what is he, what he, what he's getting at is sexual purity. Is he a pure man? Is he known for being a pure man? Or is he marked by giving into temptation? Is he marked by looking at women lustfully in the world or the church? Is he, is he marked by a struggle with pornography? And if so, what exactly does his struggle look like? I mean, if his eyes and if his, his heart are consumed with the passions of the flesh and the world, then it's a legitimate question to wonder and to ask whether he is consumed with the Savior and the Savior's love. Is this a man who gets the love of Jesus, whose love is committed, devoted, and intentional to one bride, the church? You know, we want someone to be a shepherd. Uh, if a man is to be a shepherd, you want someone who understands the Savior's love because that's the love he's supposed to minister to us. The next characteristics there, these are characteristics that undergird what being a one-woman man man is. If you look there in verse 2, and you can kind of take the next three as sort of one clump. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Here he's just talking about managing his life in an orderly way. And uh, he must exercise his self-restraint internally and externally so that he would not, look there, be a drunkard. He would not be violent, but gentle. He would not be quarrelsome. He would not be a lover of money. So he's exercising right uh, assessment of things. He's a temperate man. Uh, He is a self-controlled man, a respectable man, and so he is not these other things. So this man is not dominated by these types of things, but instead he's dominated by the fruit of the Spirit. Not given to drunkenness, but filled with the Spirit. Not violent, So, therefore, he won't lord over the church, but instead he knows peace and he knows patience and he knows the joy of Christ because he's a recipient of it, right? He knows it, and therefore, when a man knows it, he's going to give it and shepherd accordingly, just like Jesus. He's also also, uh, not quarrelsome, so he's, he's, he's gentle. This man sees the long journey of sanctification, and so, therefore... He's not going to make his sheep die on every single mound. But he knows the big battles in which to go to war at. He knows what the major things are and he keeps the main things the main things. So in light of the false teachers, you guys remember that in in 1 Timothy there, there were false teachers who were teaching false things. They took things peripheral or even things that weren't on the radar and they made them central. They made them primary. Therefore, displacing the gospel of the central place that it it must possess. A man unable to anticipate just how long sanctification takes turns every mound into a hill to die on. And we can be sure that many sheep will be sacrificed to a quarrelsome and controlling shepherd. This man is not patient, the quarrelsome man. Uh, This man is actually exacting to the point of debilitating. You guys might know what this is like. Maybe you have a boss like this. Maybe you have parents like this. Maybe you yourself are like this towards your loved one. Every single thing is worth fighting for with just as much energy and vigor, even though you're right. That's actually 
not very helpful in the big picture of sanctification. The man must also not be a lover of money. So he, he's not greedy. The false teachers, they were after money. They, they weaseled their way into positions of leadership in order to drain the sheep of their resources, just like the shepherds in Ezekiel, the false ones, who clothed themselves and fed themselves, who ensured their own comfort and care, and in so doing, not only let the sheep get eaten by wolves, but devoured them themselves. They're draining the sheep's resources. But you look at Jesus, right? Jesus, he has all the resources of heaven, and he desires to give them to us over time, ultimately in heaven. That's the shepherd that we want shepherding our people. And that's what I should aspire to, which is a weighty task, weighty responsibility. I mean, how does a shepherd, if he's getting rich off of the sheep, say with any conviction, lay your treasures up in heaven when I'm stealing from you? draining you of your resources i can't shepherd like jesus shepherds in that case the greedy man will be surely busy with taking and will not be busy giving of himself he won't have a generous heart and that's an attribute as we move on to there in verse three required for one to be hospitable this man must be hospitable he must be welcoming to outsiders one who is a shepherd is to be known for giving himself to others, just like Jesus Christ. And giving oneself to others means seeking, really, their good, the good of other people. Instead of running people over in violence and quarrels, he serves them with his God-given resources. He's hospitable, open to outsiders, very welcoming. And I pray that that would reflect more and more this congregation, that we all would be hospitable, just as uh, we are commanded to here in scripture. It's not only the, the one who seeks to be an elder, but everyone is supposed to be hospitable. Everyone is not supposed to be a drunkard and not greedy. Everyone is supposed to be uh, sober-minded, self-controlled, well thought of by outsiders. <clears throat> so, so far, get this. I mean, the whole list here, this is given to everybody. This is what Don Carson says. He says, this list here is remarkable for really being unremarkable. Every characteristic we looked at thus far are characteristics that should mark every single Christian. The reason why is because we're supposed to display Christ's character to the world. And he calls us all to do that. And he calls especially the elders to do that. To be exemplary in their Christ-like character. You know what? As I think about this in application and application and reflection, uh, I praise God that as I look over the congregation, I see people pursuing these things whether they be women or whether they be men. People who want to be known for being hospitable, self-controlled people, people not dominated by the worldly things, but people genuinely wanting to be dominated by the things of God. And I see men here who are doing that uh, without a title. So they don't need to be deacons, as we're going to look at next week. They don't need to be deacons uh, to have the title there or the title of an elder before they're doing these things. I can point to a number of men here in this congregation who are seeking to care just like Jesus cares. And that's evidences of God's grace to us, isn't it? That we are loving more like Jesus, that our hearts are growing larger, that we're learning to shepherd just like our chief shepherd. So I hope and I pray that you guys are encouraged too. So not only is the elder to be a holy man above reproach, He's also to be a proven shepherd of his family. This is the second large category here. A proven shepherd of his family. And really, he is to be a shepherd of his own family in order that God's sheep would be shepherd. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, right? Look there in verses 4 and 5. It says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So here, shepherding in the home is portrayed as the training ground for shepherding in the church. Paul is saying that, um, Paul is not saying that the elder candidate must be married. That's not the point that he's getting at. He's not saying here when he says children in the plural, he's not saying that the, that the elder must have more than one child. He's simply addressing the situation that most men would eventually come and find themselves. Eventually, most men are going to be married. Eventually, most men are going to be shepherding children. That's what he's getting at here. Um, he's addressing circumstances that most men will find themselves in. So if a man evidences the ability to shepherd at home, 
right? If he evidences a Christ-like heart at home, those are really good things. We see the trajectory. Those are good signs. I mean, if his children don't even respect him, if they don't find him worthy of honor, if they are not submitting to his leadership and shepherding, well, how exactly is this man going to shepherd in the church? I mean, this natural logic would say if this man's life is falling apart at the home, then this man's life is going to fall apart in the church. Uh, So how one leads at home is probably how one is going to lead in the church. So... If you rule with an iron fist at home, you're probably going to rule the church with an iron fist too. If your primary concern at home is that your family uphold your rules, you're probably going to be that way in the church. If you can't lead your family firmly but compassionately at home, why would one think, why would you think that you could do so in the church? Uh, So this is all about trajectories, right? The first step at home will determine how you're going to shepherd in the church and how you're going to step in the church. It's all about trajectories. We could do this all day. Positively, if you are fighting to exhaust yourself for your wife, you're probably going to do that for other sheep. Um, If you're reading the Bible at home, if you're evangelizing and discipling your children, going for their hearts, loving your wife and your kids, listening to them, identifying with them even in their struggles, if you're open with your wife and really open your heart and desire her to enter into your situation, your life, your difficulties, your struggles and your sins and your joys. If you seek her advice, you're probably going to do similar things with the church and for the church. So for those of you who are not married, you might be wondering, well, hey, where's my training ground? The answer is here in this church. The church is your training ground where you can express and exercise godliness, specifically in caring for other people. So one doesn't need a wife or children in order to learn to be a shepherd. So you realize, okay, for those of you, for you men who desire to be shepherds, you realize that the ways in which you care for a future wife overlap tremendously with the ways that you could care for a man, or the ways that you care for a man overlap tremendously with the ways that you care for your future wife. You're still going to need to encourage them in the word. You're still going to ask them how you can be praying for them and how their struggle to believe in christ is going you're still gonna have to ask them how they're doing and exhaust yourself for them if you genuinely care for their spiritual maturity so brothers give yourself to discipling men if you aren't married even if you are married give yourself to discipling men take the initiative in caring for them and serving them getting to matters of the heart Moving on, a holy man is not only a, or a, a, a prospective elder ought not only be a holy man, a man above approach, he ought not only be a proven shepherd of his family, a man who's exercising his gifts of shepherding, he must also be an able teacher. This is the third large category, an able teacher. The reason why, it seems pretty obvious, is that God wants his sheep to be fed with his word. It is true that the elder must teach, but here the emphasis is actually on how he teaches. The emphasis here is on his ability to teach. He must be an able teacher. Don Carson points out that teaching requires both knowledge and ability. Some men have great knowledge. Other men have great ability. Um, But here, if one is to be an elder, he must have both knowledge and ability. Now, don't get me wrong in thinking... Don't don't hear me saying that every elder ought to have, let's say, the knowledge and ability of a Charles Spurgeon. I wouldn't be pastoring you if that were the case. Um, That's not the way to think of it here. When I say great knowledge and great ability, I'm not thinking everyone must be, you know, someone like a Charles Spurgeon or someone like a Whitfield or someone like a Calvin or Charles Wesley or somebody like that. The reason why is that in some aspects, knowledge and ability are relative to the community. Knowledge and ability are relative to the community. Carson, a New Testament scholar, he points out that, you know, at this point in time, the church was still relatively young. But nevertheless, they're supposed to appoint elders. So when a community comes together, they're looking for, okay, who are the godly men in this community? Who are the men who exemplify these characteristics? And let's go with them. 
So great teaching, great knowledge, however one might define it, it's not going to look like Charles Spurgeon necessarily. And if you were to line up some of these elders with, let's say, some of the, um, let's say a pastor of a church who's been pastoring for 30 years, right, they're going to look a little different as with age comes wisdom and then with experience comes wisdom. But here it's not saying that they must be great as we might define it in an earthly sense. It's just that he must be able. He must be able to just rightly handle the word of God. That is taking God's word and simply giving the sense of it. Unfolding what God's word says to God's people. And in so doing, that would make one an able teacher, rightly handling the word of truth. So don't, if you were to leave here, or even if you're visiting here and you're looking for someone who preaches like John MacArthur, I don't preach like John MacArthur. But nevertheless, that doesn't mean that this word is active and working by the power of the Spirit. A, a man, a teacher, must simply be an able teacher. So those of you men who aspire to the office of elder, which I hope is all of you men, do you want to grow in your ability to handle the word? I hope so. i got a few ways to encourage you as you desire to grow in your ability to handle the word. Number one, read the word. You want to grow in your ability to handle the word? Just simply read the word. Understand it, get it sense, so that when you're called on to teach it, you're able to unfold it. Second thing is listen to sermons. Some of you guys have a commute. I was meeting up with one brother, and he certainly has a commute. Um, this is a perfect time to listen to sermons. And so, as I was conversing with his brother, I said, "Okay, look, here's here's some resources. Take them, listen, and listen to them, and that'll that'll help you not only with your personal situation, but it'll also help that brother." Uh, know how to handle the word and he's doing it and loving it and i know this happens to a lot of you guys you use your commutes in such a way where you're listening to good and helpful sermons that help you get the sense of the text what god is saying um one of my former pastors he preached a sermon on every single book of the bible Uh, or i should say every book of the bible received one sermon so there are 66 sermons Let's say one sermon on the book of Timothy, one sermon on the book of Second Timothy, one book, one sermon on the book of Titus, and on and on and on. Uh, and then not only that, but he also preached sermons on the entire New Testament, and then a sermon on the entire Old Testament, and then a sermon on the entire Bible. So you're looking at 69 sermons. You could literally, if you wanted to start tomorrow, you could listen to one sermon a day and potentially finish around mid-January, listening to sermons on every single book of the Bible, the Bible at large, the Old Testament, the New Testament. So you basically could finish by the middle of January. If you want that challenge, come and talk to me and I'll point you to those resources. The third thing you can do, not only read the word, not only listen to sermons, but you can grow in your ability. You can grow in your ability actively. Children's ministry is one of them. Children's ministry is a fantastic way to grow in knowledge and your ability to teach where you could take the deep truths of God and teach young little children. You can encourage them in the word. Not only that, but you, you take out the word. If you know someone is struggling with some particular sin, you take out the word and you minister these truths to that person. And even if you don't know how, you know, you can take some time, the free, take the freedom to acknowledge that you don't know how to encourage them from the word. Then you go away, you craft an email, you figure out what God says, and then you send them that email in seeking to exercise your ability to handle the word of God. We also have small groups. We also have evening service opportunities where people can be preaching. If you want those opportunities, feel free and come to me. And if we go to you saying, look, we'd love for you to take up these opportunities, take them and run with them. It's an excellent way to hone your skills in becoming an able teacher. So not only must this man, this man who seeks to be an elder, be a holy man, Not only must he be a man who shepherds his family or have gifts of shepherding, uh, he must also be an able teacher and he must lastly be one who protects the church from disgrace. Lastly, he must be one who protects the church from disgrace. The reason why, now here we get the weight again, is so that God would not be disgraced. So you look at verses 6 and 7, and I think this is the sort of the big picture thing that he's talking about. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, a disgrace is exactly what the devil wants of this church. 
That's what Satan wants of this church. And you guys know that a church is at a low when a church's pastor is discovered to be living in unrepentant sin. And in that moment, you know that it seems that Satan is one. In that moment, everyone else around us is looking at, is there really power to save in this gospel you preach in? Are you all just a bunch of hypocrites who don't repent of their sin? But we know, thank God, that Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell won't overcome it. So ultimately, even though there's damage done to God's reputation, done for a little bit of time, we know that even something like that cannot thwart God's plan for the church. But for a moment, that pastor falls into the disgrace of the devil. The same condemnation of the devil. And he plunges the church, therefore, into disgrace and defames the name of God. So if that man wants to be a pastor of God's people, he has to first protect himself from disgrace. And he says he must not be a new convert there. And we know that if we jump into some situation and it appears to be successful, it goes to our head. And we, therefore, are not shepherding in humility. We're not pointing people to Jesus, but maybe perhaps we're doing it in our own judgment, relying on our own gifts. And we fall into the same condemnation of the devil, a proud spiritual being. The second thing for the pastoral candidate and the church that's evaluating him is to make sure he has a good reputation with outsiders. Naturally, you know, this is a byproduct of living above reproach in the eyes of the world. So a question for you all is, what do my co-workers think of me? What do they think of the way that I, uh, the way that I handle myself? What do I speak about at, at, uh, around, you know, lunch, the lunch table? How am I diligent at work? Am I honest? Am I respectable? Can my bosses trust me to be faithful with even the little things that they give me? This here is living above reproach in front of the eyes of the world. And really what this does is not protect First Baptist's name, ultimately, although it does, and that's an important thing, it protects the name of God, the fame of God's name. Keep in mind here that pastors are merely, merely stewards, overseers of the things of God over the house of God. Put in charge, even though we don't deserve it. Even though we too are sinners, we recognize that we are owned by God. To shepherd a people bought and obtained by the blood of God, the Son. We are stewards of God's house. Living before the world in a way that's above reproach eventually leads them, our accusers, to say that there is nothing bad really about them. And that's the way in which we are to live. Now, if we are concerned about that, the weight of God's name and upholding the fame of God's name, if we are concerned with build, building a city on a hill, that we would be a light in a dark place, even in Hacienda Heights, that we would display God's glory, if we aren't caring about that, well then, how exactly are we to shepherd God's people in a way that displays Christ and the glories there, the beauties found in the gospel of Jesus Christ? But it's when we understand who Christ is that we're going to walk after his holiness. Because we want Christ to be exalted. When we understand that Christ saves us by his gospel, then we're going to teach that word, which is what brings salvation to the people. We're going to do so carefully. We're going to do so ably. And then when we realize that all things are made for the glory of Jesus Christ's name, we're going to care that through the church, Christ would receive all of the glory. There's also something implied here that the elder must be a believer that the elder must simply be a believer. That a man who, yes, sees Christ, knows how to teach the gospel ably, could care and concern that Christ be glorified, but really, number one, to be a man who is saved by the gospel. This is a man who so embraces the fact that Christ sheds grace and mercy and love on sinners who deserve nothing but hell, who have strayed from their God and their Creator. And so that is why God sends his son to take on flesh, to die on the cross, to bear the sins and the wrath that we deserved in order that people might be free and free to love the Savior. He then charges shepherds out of that group. He draws out shepherds and says, I entrust all of these people to you. I obtain them with my blood. And so I want you to, if necessary, to shed your blood for them as well, teaching the very gospel 
that saves people like myself. So if you are desirous to be an elder, first you must be saved. And if you are to be a sheep in God's fold, first you must be saved. And this calls us all to repent and believe in the gospel of good grace. And you will be saved and forgiven of your sin, reconciled to the Father, and made one of his sheep in his pasture. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the wonderful, beautiful example of Christ, the chief shepherd who exhausts himself for people who don't deserve it. And he does so in humility as he leaves the position of glory that he had before the creation of the world. He takes on flesh to walk amongst us. Father, I pray that Jeremy and myself and also the deacons here, the servants of the church, that we would be known to be people like this. Lord, you know that we are not perfect and we know that you do not call perfect people to shepherd your church but you call fallen sinners to do that so lord we pray that where we do sin that we would confess them quickly that we would repent of them exemplifying the fact that you are a forgiving god and that you forgive our sins in jesus christ father we pray that we would exemplify this trust in you where we know that we can fly to you at any given point in time to receive grace in our time of need And Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we shepherd. Father, we pray that in our shepherding, the sheep wouldn't think ultimately that their hope resides on us. Whether in our faults or in our failures or in in the ways that we succeed. But Lord, ultimately in you, knowing that every success given is really given to us by Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that by the ways we shepherd, we shepherd in a way that resembles Jesus Christ. Father, for us all, grow us in our hearts to shepherd one another as we know that we are to speak truth in love to one another, that we are to help one another and encourage one another and help the weak and bind up the sick, and we are to do that collectively as a whole. So, Lord, we pray that this church would be known for carrying out the ministry of the gospel, the gospel which brings reconciliation to people, people, a sinful people, and a holy God. In your name we pray, amen.